Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, April 14th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Kim Potter, the Minnesota officer who shot 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop, will be charged with second-degree manslaughter, according to prosecutors, after another night of protests in Minneapolis. And with the trial of Derek Chauvin now in its third week, the defense making their case, calling the former Minneapolis police officer's actions against George Floyd justified. And controversy erupting after the CDC pauses the rollout of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. A handful of cases of blood clots reported from at least 7 million people given that vaccine. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. As reported by several major outlets, Minnesota officer Kim Porter, who resigned from the force on Tuesday after the shooting death of 20-year-old black resident Dante Wright, will be charged with second-degree manslaughter by prosecutors. This after protesters once again took to the streets in the Minneapolis areas, facing off with police and National Guard troops. Hundreds took to the streets of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, for a third night of protests over the police killing of Dante Wright. Initially peaceful, by nightfall, the tone of the crowd had changed, with protesters throwing water bottles and other objects at officers and authorities firing pepper spray and flash bombs. Many arrests for riot and other uh, criminal behaviors. We have upwards of 60 arrests for people that will be booked into the Hennepin County Jail for various charges. Some demonstrators used a line of umbrellas to shield themselves. Earlier Tuesday, Kimberly Potter, the officer who shot Wright and the police chief, Tim Gannon, both turned in letters of resignation. I'm hoping that this will help uh, bring some calm to, uh, to the community, although, uh, you know, I think ultimately people want justice. But the mayor says he has not accepted Potter's resignation amid outcry from local leaders who say she should be fired because a resignation could allow her to collect a pension. Meanwhile, Wright's loved ones, including the mother of his two-year-old son, are demanding a murder charge against Potter. Completely charged, and I just want justice for my son's dad, because it's just not fair. Records show Wright failed to appear in court on charges of possessing a firearm without a permit and running away from law enforcement. Body camera video shows Wright trying to get back into his car during the arrest. Officer Potter is heard yelling, taser, but then fires her gun. Police officials called the shooting an accidental discharge. Now Potter's home in a nearby suburb is barricaded and guarded by police, as many question how she could have made that fatal mistake. And just as George Floyd's family did last year, the Wright family is looking for more answers surrounding their loved one's death. One of the family's attorneys, Jeffrey Storms, told CNN that Gannon's explanation that the shooting appeared to be an accident is by no means proper or enough. Now let's go to former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti for more on these late-breaking developments out of Minneapolis. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So it's looking like Kim Potter will be charged with second-degree manslaughter. What are your reactions uh, to these charges? I'm not completely surprised uh, because, unfortunately, 
uh, jurors, uh, people out there like the people watching this program, often give the benefit of the doubt to police officers. And so prosecutors have to take that into account when they charge because the standard and the burden of proof is so high. You have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to make sure that all the jurors are on board with that. If even one juror disagrees, you'll have a hung jury. And so prosecutors are very careful uh, when, whenever there's even a plausible argument that the defense can make to undercharge these cases. And I think it's a problem that has to be solved in part by education of the public. Now let's talk about the specifics. Former officer Potter cited in her defense, she says she accidentally discharged her service weapon, believing that it was her taser. How common is it for police officers to claim an accidental discharge and avoid charges? Unfortunately, it's more common than you might think. Uh, I know the New York Times recently did a study and, and looked at this issue and the majority of officers were not charged in that circumstance. And I really think it goes back to that problem I just mentioned, which is officers have an incentive to come up with any story, however implausible it is, as long as it's something they can say with a straight face and you could convince one out of 12 jurors, uh, that unfortunately uh, is going to potentially uh, lead to them getting lesser charges. I'm, I, I am hardened here that there was, was at least a charge brought, but obviously I, I think everyone has a right to be very concerned and alarmed that it's an excuse that I think most of us could see through. I think most viewers know that there's a big difference between a firearm and a taser. If not, go look, go look it up on the internet and you can see the difference. They look and, they look and feel very different. Uh, nonetheless, this, this uh, got her a, a lesser charge here. And I don't mean to get ahead of ourselves, but I would like to look ahead. If former officer Potter were to be charged and if she were to be convicted of second degree murder, what kind of sentence could she be looking at? Second degree manslaughter, I think, was the was the charge. And she there would be looking at a, a sentence of imprisonment. Uh, but look, the judge would have an opportunity. Uh, she or he would have an opportunity to uh, consider all of the factors that uh, you know, that go into that, the circumstances around the case, and so on. So the judge could potentially give a serious sentence compared to other second-degree manslaughter cases, but it's never going to have those very substantial penalties that would come with, let's say, a murder charge. And what that means to me is I think it, certainly if convicted, the officer is going to spend some time in prison, but just not the length of time that we would expect in a circumstance like this. Now, we know that she did resign before she could be fired, but that resignation hasn't been accepted. Could any of this change any of the criminal aspects of the case? No, and I do think that um, it would uh, be likely excluded from the trial. In other words, the department's determination regarding you know, whether or not they terminated versus she resigned would not be something that the jury could consider in determining whether or not she committed the crime. Nonetheless, uh, I, I do think it may matter from a civil liability perspective. So in other words, the department also has to think understandably about the victim's estate or family uh, bringing a suit against the department, and they should be concerned about that. And so that is, I think, part of what's going on here. And obviously the officer and uh, the officer's uh, estate and family have to be concerned about that as well. 
It's incredible that we are having this discussion once again a year, almost a year after George Floyd's death. Well, thank you so much for all this insight. Renato Mariotti, former federal prosecutor in Chicago. Thank you. CDC advisors meeting today to review the information so far collected on the six women who suffered blood clots after getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This as Dr. Anthony Fauci defends the decision to pause that rollout amid concerns it was maybe done too quickly. Lorraine Gussetis has the latest on the situation. The FDA and the CDC reportedly getting an earful for pulling the plug too quickly, stopping the J&J &J vaccine over six reports of blood clots out of almost 7 million doses administered so far. Dr. Anthony Fauci coming out to defend the decision. Our FDA is internationally known for their capability of making sure that we have the safest products out there. And that's what I meant when I said an abundance of caution. Uh, you want to make sure that safety is the important issue here. We are totally aware that this is a very rare event. We want to get this worked out as quickly as we possibly can. And that's why you see the word pause. In other words, you want to hold off for a bit and very well may go back to that, maybe with some conditions or maybe not. But we want to leave that up to the FDA and the CDC to investigate this carefully. So I don't think it was pulling the trigger too quickly. The U.S. Surgeon General says the pause gives them time to work with the medical community. We can enlist their help in looking for the kind of symptoms we may be concerned about. A crucial contribution in conducting a quick and thorough investigation and determining any common denominators among the women affected. To do the investigation quickly, to understand whether there's a connection between the vaccine and the adverse events. If a connection is found, then the FDA and CDC may come out with recommendations that include warnings, for example, for certain populations that may be at increased risk. Meanwhile, the White House responding to criticism for not notifying governors directly about the decision beforehand. We didn't know about anything uh, in terms of the announcement until last night. We didn't even know the content of the announcement until this morning when everyone else read it. As soon as we got that, we, our team farmed out and started contacting folks to make sure that everyone knew that that was uh, now announced by the FDA and CDC. In Michigan, the surprise announcement came at a devastating time as COVID-19 cases there continue to rise. Well, I mean, it's certainly that's an unfortunate development. We're going to watch it very closely. We're going to put safety first and follow the FDA and the CDC guidance. This is an important tool, and if this tool is not in our toolbox, we're going to need more help on the other uh, front. Governor Whitmer has been pushing federal authorities to send her state more vaccines, but the director of the CDC has warned that that approach won't work, making instead other recommendations. To shut things down, to flatten the curve. Meanwhile, there are several Republicans that are urging people to continue to get vaccinated. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday urging people to get the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine saying, clarifying that they are not included in this investigation related to blood clots and they've proven to be completely safe. Meanwhile, in Florida, the Governor Ron DeSantis saying that he got the J&J &J vaccine. He might he suffered minor pain in his arm and he says people need to consider that the vaccine has saved many lives, that he hopes the pause does not last long and that the CDC and the FDA are proven, are able to confirm the safety of the J&J &J vaccine. Back to you, Andrea.
Thank you, Lorraine, for that latest information. Meanwhile, as we just noted, Michigan continues to be one of the nation's hot spots for new coronavirus infections. Joining us now is Dr. Payal Patel. She's an infectious disease physician in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us now, doctor. Yeah, of course. So the governor has refused to order lockdown measures to curb the spread of the virus. What exactly are you seeing at your hospital? Yeah, you know, I think that there's multiple viewpoints here. I think that vaccines are an important part of the solution, but as things are, there needs to be public health measures in place right now. Many of the emergency rooms right now are full. That's partly because a lot of people are coming in with COVID. A lot of these folks are unvaccinated, either haven't gotten the vaccine yet or weren't sure if they were gonna get the vaccine. And some of the treatments that we have are sometimes given in the ER. So that can back things up if you're coming in for a broken bone or a heart attack and the ER is already full, that makes things a lot more complicated for everyone involved. What is a demographic profile of people currently being hospitalized with COVID-19? Has it changed at all from what we've seen in the past few months? Definitely. It's changed so much. So, you know, a few months ago, a year ago, we were seeing so many people coming in who were elderly, often over 70s, 80s, and those folks were not doing well. Luckily, we've made some major headway in getting the elderly population and so many people in nursing homes vaccinated. That's not the people we're seeing in hospitals now. We're seeing unvaccinated folks, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and also so unfortunately, a rise in pediatric population as well. And there isn't yet a vaccine available for kids under 16. Let's go ahead and discuss the current pause regarding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What impact do you believe will the FDA's recommendation to pause that rollout have on vaccine hesitancy in your state and perhaps even across the country? Yeah, I think that there is a couple of things that are going to happen. I think it makes sense to pause, try to understand whether there's a population that may not be the best suited for this vaccine. But at the same time, the J&J &J vaccine was really interesting, right? It was one dose. It was going to be a lot easier to get out to people who may be homebound, who can't get to the ER or, or to their primary care doctor. And so it's going to be a lot harder to get some people vaccinated now. I do think that in the long run, people should think about all of the things that are happening to make sure that this rollout happens in the most positive way possible, but quickly. This is the first time that we're seeing this information and people are trying urgently to figure out how to proceed quickly. In your opinion, was the FDA and CDC's decision to pause distribution of the J&J &J vaccine based on six cases an appropriate one? You know, I think we're lucky that we have multiple vaccines that are doing well. And so that is the good thing. And there's millions of people that have already been vaccinated. Right now, I think it makes sense. I'm not sure how long this pause will take, but I would remind people that there are other vaccines out there that they can go get. And we're seeing in some states that at the end of the day, people aren't showing up for appointments. You know, the quickest way out of this is getting most people vaccinated. And so that's what I would tell people to talk about with their family and friends.
What do you think it will take to lower new infections in Michigan? I mean, your state was locked down for quite a very long time, and now we're seeing, you know, all these new cases, new infections, and it's quite concerning. What will it take? It is very concerning. And, you know, I think part of it could be that we're seeing a lot of these infections are one of the variants. And it could be that that variant is easier to spread. And so with that, that means that public health measures are really going to be important. The problem is everyone is burnt out. It's been a year. I understand how hard that is myself, having been in the hospital. But I think if you could get vaccinated, that is huge. And if you are not vaccinated, staying out of the public, again, staying home, avoiding crowds, social distancing, those things are going to be things that protect you and get us back down to a better number of infections. Thank you so much, Dr. Payal Patel, infectious disease physician in Michigan. Thank you for all the work that you do and for your recommendations for our viewers. Take care. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, as experts continue assessing the impact of the pandemic across the planet, a U.S. intelligence report is warning that the coronavirus has increased economic and political instability across the globe. The findings are a part of the annual threat assessment report. That report outlining that the dire economic conditions that could cause top security concerns are the risk of internal conflicts, surges in cross-border migration, and even the collapse of national governments. The report also offered warnings about Russian and Chinese influence operations. The countries are reportedly trying to exploit the crisis to increase their political influence. And in foreign policy news, President Joe Biden will be announcing his administration's plans to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks. Janet Rodriguez has the latest from Washington, D.C. Janet. Andrea, and that announcement will come a little later this afternoon, and that would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. And what we do expect the president to announce will be uh, a very a gradual drawdown from those forces that remain in Afghanistan at this time. The troops would start coming home before May 1st, and that would end before September 11th, as you said, that marks the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attack that basically led to the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And this administration believes that the goal in Afghanistan was met years ago and that the current threat in that country does not um, it, it doesn't address uh, the need to have a presence military presence there at the moment and to continue to be at war with uh, with the Taliban and that's why they're bringing the troops back officially there are about 2500 troops there at the moment and that fluctuates from month to month but uh, the we do know that this war has cost trillions of dollars throughout the years and that about 2,000 service members have lost their life. U.S. service members have lost their lives in the past 20 years and about 100,000 Afghanis, uh, civilian Afghanis have either been killed or um, injured in the war. And we do know also that this goes beyond that deadline that was um, that was May 1st. That was the original deadline that then President Trump had agreed with the Taliban to bring the troops home when asked to this administration why this deadline had been moved and pushed all the way to September 11th. And if this has anything, anything to do with that 20th anniversary, the administration, the government saying today that no, doesn't have anything to do 
with that uh, 20th anniversary. Instead, there was a, a thorough review as to when and how to bring the troops home safely. And that was the, the day that they were able to come up with uh, in, consult, in consulting U.S. military officials. And we do expect the president, after he's done with this announcement today, to go over to Arlington National Cemetery to pay his tribute to fallen soldiers. Andrea? Thank you, Janet Rodriguez, reporting from Washington, D.C. And on Capitol Hill, President Joe Biden notifying House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that he will accept her invitation to speak at a joint session of Congress on April 28th. This will be the first time Biden gives remarks to both chambers and also comes as the administration is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and calling on lawmakers to back the White House's major infrastructure proposal. And Speaker Pelosi says she is open to creating a select committee on the Capitol riots. That is, if efforts to create a bipartisan 9-11 style commission continue to remain stalled. Pelosi made the revelation during an exclusive interview with USA Today, saying she would soon be introducing legislation to harden security at the Capitol. She says despite knowing some people in the mob made comments about wanting to kill her, she always felt safe because of the security around her. And in other news out of Washington, the head of the IRS announced yesterday that the IRS is on track to start sending stimulus enhanced child tax credits to millions of families. That means new advance monthly payments of as much as $300 per child could begin flowing to lower income families this summer. The agency intends to debut an online portal on July 1st to allow it to send the child tax credit to families periodically this year instead of as a lump sum at tax time. They can use the portal to inform the IRS of any changes to their household in 2021 or to just opt out of monthly payments. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In Southern California, a viral story with a happy ending. As Luis Mejid explains, it all started when a San Diego couple found a lost GoPro camera and then posted footage from that camera to TikTok. An afternoon in the mountains, an anniversary in San Diego. Some moments are priceless. Too bad that for Alejandro Lopez and Priscilla Bernal, memories were recorded in a GoPro that got lost four years ago in a creek. They spent more than an hour looking for it. Finally, they had to give up. The camera was lost, and so were the images. Until a day, four years later, when Rio Villa and her boyfriend found the GoPro and posted the videos on TikTok to find the owners. What if they're not together anymore? Do they even want to see this footage? The video became viral. It was viewed for more than 3 million people, among them Alejandro and Priscilla. Even though they could hardly believe it, they drove to Los Angeles to meet with Rio Villa and get the camera back. An unlikely happy ending 
for an unlikely story. Creo que es un mensaje de Dios de que nada es imposible, todo se puede y que todavía hay gente buena en este mundo que Alejandro que hace Priscilla believe that is a sign that most people are good people and that good things are still possible. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.